Welcome to the Making Sense Podcast. This is Sam Harris. Okay, well, we're about a week into the tragedy and fiasco of Afghanistan, which is in part the topic of today's podcast. As you'll hear, I'm not entirely sure what I think about our withdrawal. That is, I'm not sure what I think about whether or not it should have happened. I can honestly inhabit both sides of that debate. But how we withdrew, the lack of preparation, the lack of foresight, the lack of consultation with our allies, like the British, our failure to extract the tens of thousands of Afghans who helped us, the interpreters and their families, whose lives are now in utter jeopardy because of our bungling, our failure to ensure the safe passage of our own citizens, all of this is such a shocking betrayal of our obligations and of our own interests that it just beggars belief. It's almost impossible to imagine a greater indication of American decline and a greater gift to our enemies, to the jihadists globally, who must feel absolutely triumphant at this moment, and to China and Russia, who must now know to a moral certainty that they can always call our bluff because we simply are no longer a competent superpower. We have been visibly spooked by our own shadow here. So if China invades Taiwan this year or next or the year after, I think it's safe to say that our frantic withdrawal from Afghanistan will surely be one of the reasons why they felt they could. Again, I'm not taking a position on the question of whether we should have left Afghanistan now, or last year, or 10 years ago. I can see both sides of that debate. But the way we left is absolutely astonishing, and it will harm us as a nation, guaranteed. Who will trust our assurance of protection now? Whether it's an ally like Taiwan or any faction within a country that we're trying to support in some future humanitarian crisis. And if you don't think that matters, if you don't think we need our friends to trust us and our enemies to fear us, I don't know what planet you think you're living on. Perhaps you think we can just retreat from geopolitics altogether and simply ignore the rest of the world. We should just repair our bridges and get the lead out of our water pipes, right? Of course we should do those things immediately. But a world without America as a functioning superpower is a very scary world, and not just for Americans. A world where our NATO allies can't trust us to honor our obligations is a world where the risk of major wars has increased, not decreased. So what has happened in this last week, it's like the wheels have completely come off. As a country, we have to get a handle on this. And again, I think this has to be recognized and responded to whatever you think about the wisdom of getting out of Afghanistan. Anyway, those of you who might want to support our friends in Afghanistan who desperately need refugee status, I would recommend a donation to the International Rescue Committee. I had David Miliband on the podcast previously, I think about a year ago, who runs it, and the Waking Up Foundation 
will be donating $100,000 to the IRC this week, which of course is made possible by those of you who subscribe either to the Making Sense podcast or to the Waking Up app, or both. So thank you for that. And if any of you get inspired to ride along with us in this donation this week to the IRC, I would certainly welcome it. And the website for the International Rescue Committee is rescue.org. And now for today's podcast, where we get into many of the details here. Today I'm speaking with Peter Bergen. Peter is the author of several books, most recently The Rise and Fall of Osama bin Laden, which we discuss in the second half of the podcast. He is a vice president at New America and a professor at Arizona State University and also a national security analyst for CNN. Peter has testified before Congress and held positions at Harvard and Johns Hopkins and has been covering jihadist terrorism and al-Qaeda in particular since the 90s. So in this podcast, we discuss the U.S. exit from Afghanistan and the resurgence of the Taliban. Uh, And then we get into his new book. We cover the neo-isolationist consensus that seems to be forming on the far right and far left politically, the legitimacy of our initial involvement in Afghanistan, whatever you think of the ultimate outcome. We discuss our ethical obligations to our Afghan allies. Biden's disastrous messaging, the weakness of the Afghan army and what happened there, the advantages that the Taliban had, the implications for global jihadism, the relationship between the Taliban and al-Qaeda, how Osama bin Laden came to lead al-Qaeda, bin Laden's religious convictions, our failure to capture him at Tora Bora, the distraction of the war in Iraq, the myth that the CIA funded al-Qaeda, Bin Laden's relationship with his wives, his years of hiding in Pakistan, his death at the hands of U.S. Special Forces, and other topics. Anyway, the conversation is all too timely, unfortunately, and whether or not Afghanistan stays in our news cycle, I think the reality of what's happening there is going to have implications for a long time to come. And this conversation is certainly a good starting point for thinking about why that's the case. And now I bring you Peter Bergen. I am here with Peter Bergen. Peter, thanks for joining me. Sam, thank you for having me on. So you've written a a wonderful book, which we will get into, The the Rise and Fall of Osama Bin Laden. It's actually, it's a great audio book too. That's how I consumed most of it this week. Oh, that's good to hear. Yeah, yeah, you didn't you didn't read it, but you I didn't. It, you know, actually, strangely, uh, reading these books, uh, I don't know if you've done your own books, but it's a very exhausting process, yeah. which is kind of counterintuitive. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I, I, I it's a total ordeal for me to read books. <laughs> uh, I mean, it's, it's it's genuinely harrowing. I've actually had to rewrite sentences on the fly because I could literally could not get through them even after twenty takes. I just they they were not <laughs> written to be read by me. It was just a <laughs> an insane Cirque du Soleil routine that I could not perform. So um, yeah, so we'll we'll get to the book, which is which is all too germane to the current topic that's absorbing everyone's interests now uh, and concern, which is the fall of Afghanistan to the Taliban. But um, I guess before we jump in, 
Uh, maybe summarize your background. How is it that you come to know about these issues, and, and what have you focused on these many years? Well, you know, I was living in Manhattan in the, in the uh, early 90s, before I moved to D.C., and on February, in late February 1993, a group of men drove a van into the World Trade Center parking garage and blew it up, intending to bring down both towers. And there were, these men had one thing in common. They'd all supported the Afghan war effort against the Soviets or actually even fought in Afghanistan against the Soviets. And so I went to my bosses at CNN and said, this seems interesting. There seems to be some sort of phenomenon here. I traveled to Afghanistan, first time I ever went there. It was in the middle of a very brutal civil war, much more intense than what we see now, uh, with Peter Arnett, who was then almost certainly the world's most famous correspondent, uh, because it was relatively shortly after the end of the Gulf War. And we and uh, another colleague sort of spent many weeks in Afghanistan trying to document this. And it was a very tricky situation because it was a, a very nasty civil war and b uh no communications to speak of we took a satellite phone in that was the size of 200 pounds that was the state-of-the-art satellite phone mm. and wow. um today of course you can just use a cell phone so it was it was kind of a hard place to function but after that uh, i heard about bin laden in 1996 um and again went to my bosses at cnn they of course had no idea who he was and I said to them, you know, perhaps he was responsible for this, you know, for this phenomenon. Uh, and it, he really wasn't involved in the, in the Trade Center bombing in 93, except in the most peripheral of ways. Uh, but of course, he was responsible for this both organization and movement that, would, that kind of was an outgrowth of the 93 Trade Center bombing. Yeah, yeah. So um, we'll go, you know, we'll, we'll go back into the history a bit and, and, track through your book, but what are your thoughts now upon seeing over the last week what has happened in Afghanistan? Well, unfortunately, it was both predicted and predict predictable, you know, not only by myself, but by others, because you didn't need to be sort of Clausewitz to recognize that if we absented ourselves entirely, we, the United States, well, then all our NATO allies would leave. There were, by the way, 2,500 American troops, but there were 7,000 NATO allied troops. Mm and 16,000 contractors, all of which ha are, have left or are in the process of leaving. And this caused a complete collapse of morale amongst the Afghan military and Afghan government. And there's a kind of line of argument that the Afghan army was weak. And, and you know, certainly there is you know, some truth to it. It's you know, an incompetently led organization. But 66,000 Afghan soldiers and Afghan policemen died fighting the Taliban which is about 30 times larger than the number of American fatalities. So, you know, it's not that there wasn't a will to fight. It's just the will to fight evaporated when there was no longer medevac, close air support, American advisors, etc. Hmm. Yeah, I, I want to get into the, uh, the seeming conundrum of, of what happened with the Afghan army. But before we do, let, let, uh, what I'm, tr I'm troubled by in the last few days in, in, just in witnessing the reaction to this there seems to be a consensus forming in, in domestically in America. I mean, maybe it's worldwide, but there's a, a kind of neo-isolationist consensus on, on the far left and the far right. And, for, you know, may, maybe far is in scare quotes. I don't know how far in either direction you have to go before you run into this. But it seems that both sides of the political spectrum 
have large cohorts that agree that not only did we have to leave Afghanistan, but we had no business being there in the first place, right? And, and the whole project was illegitimate. And, you know, on the right, I think you, you tend to hear people denigrating the Afghans and, and, and thinking that they just, you know, they're, they're not ready for democracy. They, they want the Taliban. They're barbarians. This was a fool's errand to try to bring them into the 21st century. And, you know, above all, at this moment, let's keep their damn refugees out of our country, right? So there's that attitude on the far right. On the left, people tend to denigrate America and Western civilization. And so the, the, very, the idea that we were, could pretend to want to spread our values to the rest of the world when we're the greatest criminals and terrorists in history. And I mean, it's just, it's surreal. On the, I mean, on the left, you have people who list their preferred pronouns in their Twitter bios and who would want to see their neighbors and coworkers destroyed for telling off-color jokes but who will simultaneously claim that we shouldn't judge the treatment of women under the Taliban, right? I mean, who are we to pretend to care about these women, and who are we to even judge this ancient culture for its own, you know, norms? But both sides seem to agree that we we have no business being the world's cop, and that nation-building never works, and, you know, that, and then you have these phrases, these catchphrases that do immense work here, where you know, Afghanistan was the graveyard of empires, right? So we should, of course, we, this was ill-conceived. And, you know, we've, we were committed to a forever war here. And, and on both sides, people seem to imagine that the reason why we were in there was to enrich ourselves in some way. We were stealing natural resources. And I'm sure both sides, in the end, will find some way to put the Jews at the back of all of this. I mean, it's just we're, we're living in an in a information space that is contaminated by conspiracy theory and a complete loss of trust in the media, in institutions, in the possibility of uh, benign American power. And so I just, you know, before we get into the details of, of the rest, I'm just wondering how you see the, this consensus that we, you know, we had to rip the Band-Aid off and we're better for it. We'll just get the hell out. This was going to fail. Precise, I mean, in some ways, Biden has almost echoed this. Like, it's, it, was, it was always going to be this bad. There was no way to exit. There was going to be any better. Just rip the Band-Aid off, right? Yeah, and of course, I have a whole host of reactions to that. I mean, yeah, we've heard from the White House, in a sense, uh, through White House reporters, that, you know, the fact that it all collapsed so quickly is evidence of Biden's brilliant, brilliant decision, mm-hmm. um, which kind of a sort of strange way of defending a not very smart decision. But um, so, you know, I mean, there, there are many things to be said. For a start, there are 1.3 million active duty Americans, 2 million when you throw in the reserves. And, um, you know, 2,500 is not a large, I'm not a mathematician, but it's a really, really small percentage of the force that uh, we have. And that was what sufficient to kind of prevent the collapse that, that followed. And, you know, I think that this was just completely unnecessary. You know, there's kind of two arguments, uh, sort of that are, that are being heard. One is that you know this was a great idea, but the execution was terrible. Well, no one's denying the execution was a total fiasco. But I'm also I'm unconvinced it was the right policy decision. One of the, you know, there's a great Washington D.C. tendency uh, which we're seeing right now, which is when you make a policy fiasco, you blame it on the intelligence. Hmm. Uh, you say the intelligence didn't really tell us that this would collapse so quickly or whatever, but. I think this was very fast moving, um, and and it was predictable that 
if we just pull the plug or rip the bandage off, as you put it, you know, that there was going to be real problems. And, uh, you know, here they are. And, you know, there's a kind of back to the future element to this because we're approaching the 20th anniversary of 9 11. Hmm. The Taliban are in, cro- in control of Afghanistan. Al Qaeda, according to the United Nations, in a report released in June, is closely aligned with the Taliban. Uh, the Talib- uh, Al Qaeda is present in 19 of the 34 Afghan provinces, again, according to the UN. And the resistance to the Taliban has been re- led by Ahmed Shah Massoud's son hmm. in the Panjir Valley, which is exactly what was, you know, two days before 9 11, Ahmed Shah Massoud was assassinated by Al Qaeda. So, you know, we'll see how this, you know, what it mean, what does it mean for American national security is kind of another question. I mean, it, right. we're much more well defended than we were in the past than, say, on 9 11. But there are going to be plenty of people sort of excited about this who either will try to go and get training in Afghanistan or simply radicalize at home in front of their computer and do something in the name of the Taliban or Al Qaeda, as we saw during the uh, ISIS caliphate. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so just to focus on the legitimacy of this, of the initial project for another moment, it seems to me one can, one really has to make distinctions, fairly granular distinctions across every point in this timeline. So for instance, one could certainly admit that going into Afghanistan was perfectly legitimate. We, We went in for the right reasons, we had to go in, but then also concede that the project failed there for a variety of reasons that we need to understand and that weren't foreordained, right? Or you could further argue that despite how difficult uh, our 20 years there were, the project itself was still salvageable, right? That, you know, that the serious combat for our troops had ended somewhere around 2014 and that our continued presence there would have been far preferable to what has now happened. I mean, we've been in South Korea for 70 years or so, and, you know, we've been in Western Europe longer than that, and no one's talking about a forever war with respect to those places. So it's clear that we can maintain troops in places for a sane purpose, you know, whether it's humanitarian or geopolitical or both, without feeling that we have become the world's masochists or, or an evil empire. So it's just I mean, whatever you th- you know wherever you fall in your your optimism or pessimism with respect to the possibilities in Afghanistan, it's still possible to argue that maintaining our presence there, as mediocre as the result seemed, is far better than than what has just happened and what is likely to be coming. I mean, I'm in violent agreement with that. Yeah, the enemy of the perfect isn't sort of uh, the reasonably okay. And the, what we had before was sort of reasonably okay. And this mm. is obviously a ca- catastrophic debacle uh, that has sort of taken place. And um, so, you know, the, 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 the 2,500 troops or the 3,500 troops, and part of this also was just about, I think, our messaging. And we've been saying since that we're planning to leave Afghanistan since December 1st, 2009, when President Obama went to West Point to announce a surge. And at the same time, a surge of troops, and at the same time announced their withdrawal date. And of course, Trump, you know, repeatedly said we're leaving, and and Biden has completed the withdrawal. Of course, he can change his mind. I mean, President Obama changed his mind in Iraq after the rise of ISIS and mm-hmm. sent in you know thousands of troops in the end. 
to train the Iraqi counterterrorism service, which turned out to be a very effective special forces unit, which pretty much destroyed much of Al-Qaeda in Iraq with American air support. So, you know, the, this is not over. Biden can change his mind. I mean, right now we're in the phase of trying to get Americans out and our allies. But, um, yeah, it, yeah. Yeah. So I mean, even there, like, even if you disagree with the position I just sketched out, which I, the truth is I'm not, I'm not even sure what my view is here. I, you know, I, I could easily be persuaded that we should have gotten out more or less now. Right. But what seems patently obvious and, and, and is, has been denied by every one of Biden's public utterances I've heard thus far is that we could have and should have massively prepared to extract not only our you know the 10 to or 15,000 American citizens who are rumored to still be there but um all of our allies I mean, all of the people who put their lives on the line to collaborate with us you know who are translators and people who are now very much at risk of being killed by the Taliban I mean the, we had an ethical obligation, we have an ethical obligation to get them out. And the idea that we couldn't have done it in a truly orderly way with sufficient force on the ground, that just seems insane. And, and, and that, I, mean, I, I don't know how, in, in his messaging about this, I don't know why Biden would even be tempted to try to put a brave face on, on how this has, has unraveled here and claim that there's, there was no better way to do this. We can't even guarantee the safe passage of our own citizens to the airport. Well, I mean, I completely agree with that. I don't think there's a single person listening to this who doesn't think that this has been you know, extremely poorly handled. The, the harder question where people do disagree is like, was it the right thing to do? Let's, let's do the thought experiment where this was perfectly planned. And a year went into the planning and everybody needed to get out, got out. You know, I think you would have still ended up... Uh, with the with the Taliban in control, and you know, some people may be fine with that, and some people may may not be. I mean, yeah. I, I fall into the category of I spent a fair amount of time in Taliban controlled Afghanistan, uh, so and I have a healthy skepticism for their claims of amnesty for people that were fighting them. I have a healthy skepticism for their claims about girls being educated or women having jobs. I mean, there is the, the crucial modifier in their statements, Sam is. Whenever they say something like, uh, well, yeah, well, of course we'll have education for, for, for women. And they, then they add, in the context of Sharia law, yeah. uh, <laughs> which is a pretty large caveat because their interpretation of Sharia law differs pretty markedly from most Muslims. Uh, and the same thing they've actually said about the independent media. Yeah, we're, we're going to have an independent media, but they're going to have to kind of do it in the context of Sharia law. So. You know, that these are huge caveats, and these are coming from you know the sort of Doha Taliban or political Taliban. The people in the field, you know, they're going to sort of make their own judgments about who they want to kill or you know attack, because the Taliban itself is not a monolithic entity. So you know, it's I yeah you know, question for you, which is, you know, if you were to score this as sort of an American failure. Is this Hurricane Katrina, you know, for Bush? Is this, you know, the, the Iraq War decision? Is this, you know, I, it's it's hard for me to think of a of an analog of something that was so poorly handled and so uh, unnecessarily screwed up. Even with the Iraq yeah. War decision, it didn't really become clear until several months in 
what a fiasco it was and you know all the false pretenses that it, that it was kind of predicated upon here the disaster is immediately obvious from day one and i i doubt the pictures are going to get better over time yeah yeah i mean there's there's something especially grotesque about this because the images you know I mean, and i'm sure we're going to see worse in coming weeks but i mean the, the images we have are you know every bit as bad as the fall of saigon and biden is becoming a, a gaff machine with respect to this topic i mean he, you know, the, we, the the images have have been supplied you know precisely in the form he said they they would never uh, appear right you know he said we will not see fall of saigon like images and what we have seen is is worse but certainly reminiscent of 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 those older images i mean there's just a pervasive sense that you know there are no grown-ups left to help run the world i mean we if Biden's presidency meant anything as a, a real turning of the page from Trump's, it was in a re- renewed commitment to competence, right? And I mean, this is so incompetent. I mean, I don't think it, we should be under under any illusions that it would be better if Trump were in charge. I mean, tr- if if Trump were president, I'm sure he would have done something just like this. I mean, he's the one who committed us to getting out in May. You know, he sign this, uh, I believe it's referred to as the capitulation agreement with the Taliban. So he's he started us on this path. But, you know, if he were president, you could just imagine what his messaging would be. He would say things like, I mean, he, he's totally capable of saying things like, I love the Taliban. You know, they, say only, they only say nice things about me. You know, he's, he it could just be a complete repudiation of any sort of moral uh, integrity we once had. But effectively, that's happening anyway in how little thought we've given to the the well-being of the people who helped us and yeah i mean the the idea that a generation of women and girls is now going to be pitched back into the dark ages is something that no one should be comfortable with and it's certainly an argument it, it, it's all one needs for an argument to have continued our presence there for another generation at whatever Sacrifice. It seemed, uh, you know, at this point, a, a truly minimal sacrifice, just to ensure that women and girls are not uh, pointlessly immiserated for um, the rest of their lives under the Taliban. And you, st- I like the, I like the verb immiserated because also that's going to be true for <laughs> much of the rest of the population. Yeah. I mean, I, uh, immiseration that I witnessed when I was in Taliban-controlled Afghanistan was, you know, the, the, the country had already gone through. The Soviet occupation and a civil war, the economy was what remained of the economy completely disappeared under the Taliban. You know, I, I spoke to doctors who were earning in Kabul who were earning six dollars a month. And you know, the Taliban. The, so, what is the Taliban project? The Taliban project is to make society pure, and the and then when society is pure, everybody it will be you know, utopia will be achieved. Unfortunately, they, that doesn't plan for things like, you know, keeping the electricity on or the water. The Taliban is not really interested in sort of conventional governance. They are interested in judicial decision making, and they're interested in kind of, mono, you know, kind of how to, you know, set up an educational system that conforms with their views. But as for anything else, they don't have, it, you know, maybe the new Taliban will have more competent people, uh, but they certainly didn't when they were in power. And it's really not their priority. I mean, I haven't seen a Taliban plan for, you know, kind of what their economic plan is, or like it's almost a, it's almost an oxymoron. 
so you know unfortunately we can expect them to as as we've already seen you know attack or try and attack anybody that they consider to be an enemy which is anybody who collaborated with the united states or our nato allies and the number is uh, you know i i it's hard to put a number on how many people worked with different we had 49 countries in there at one point who are going back to this trend of legitimacy actually sam i mean this is probably one of the more legitimate wars in history because mm-hmm. not only did the congress vote overwhelmingly uh, with only one dissenting vote which was barbara lee of california uh, then nato invoked article five for the first time and only time in its history the collective right to self-defense and rather crucially the united nations passed a resolution a few days after 9-11 saying that the United States could respond by any, any means necessary, which is UN speak for, you know, basically you can go to war in a legitimate sense. So, yeah, I can't think of, of a war certainly the United States has conducted where there was that level of international and unanimity on the legitimacy of the war. You know, I'm surprised by the, the figure that you gave earlier of the troop levels of our allies that were, that yeah. were still there. That that opens the question: Why is it all on us? Or maybe I'm just I have a myopic view of our own national disgrace here. But and I, I think the UK is people in the UK are expressing the same opinion of themselves. But why you know why was our pulling out synonymous with the unraveling of everything? That is a very good question. But I mean, the, the seven thousand American Allied troops, the NATO troops that were there. You know, a lot of them were doing advise and assist missions. It was non-combat roles. You know, like in in Germany, and and uh, you know, uh, the 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 German, you know, the the German political dispensation wouldn't allow Germans to be involved in combat, mm-hmm. and so they, they were you know mostly in supporting roles uh, of one kind or another, which is important. We're gathering intelligence, but you know, we provide the. The security umbrella under under which all this took place, and that's in terms of you know our satellite imagery and our our drones and you know the levels of intelligence we have mm. and you know the and and the fact that we have special operations and you know forces that can go out on counterterrorism missions. I think you know that when that was pulled out, I mean a leading indicator. I don't know if you remember this, Sam, but the Australians said they were going to close their embassy. It, it feels like it was several weeks ago. That they mm. said that. I mean, they saw the writing on the wall, and the Australians actually fought rather bravely, you know, in in Afghanistan. So it just it just created this sort of crisis of confidence. And and war, you know, I'm war is always about a contest of wills. And if you know, if if the will starts kind of receding, it's it's a very quick, you know, it's the Hemingway line about how did you go bankrupt? Well, first gradually, and then suddenly, mm. this is what happened. Well, so on on the point of bankruptcy. What do we make of the collapse of the Afghan government and the Afghan police and, and armed forces? I mean, I, I, it seems like the writing has been on the wall there for a very long time in terms of our knowing about the corruption of the government. I, actually, I, I, you know, I, I was unaware of how deep this ran, but this week I, I, someone surfaced a documentary that was from 2012. Perhaps you saw it. The, the, the journalist Ben Anderson for Vice, uh, we, with, along with Eddie Moretti, produced this documentary titled uh, This Is What Winning Looks Like. I think it came out in, in 2012. And he was just, Ben Anderson was embedded with 
U.S. forces who were taking a purely supportive role for um, Afghan forces at that point, and just letting them execute all their missions. And the the kind of lack of real trust and you know real morale between the Americans and the 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 Afghans was pretty startling. And I mean, they're just these ghastly episodes where you know they they'd find you know an, an Afghan police commander who's you know raping boys, uh, and you know, they wanted you know the yeah the Americans want to do something about this and. What they come up against is that this is basically a social norm that, you know, it's just, it's ubiquitous. It's like, I think one of the Afghans said, you know, good luck finding a police commander who's not raping boys, right? I mean, it's just, this is what we do. Then they were, they, they were raped as boys and now they're entitled to rape boys. And so there was just, there was such a disjunction between any kind of idealism for what could be built through this partnership and what was actual, and the actual, you know, truth on the ground, and there were so many signs that this would unravel. I mean, that we're putting people in totally untenable situations when we're going into a village, you know, along with Afghan forces, and demanding that people support the government. And it was perfectly obvious that you know, the villagers, I mean, they had to hedge their bets. I mean, because they, they know the Taliban could be in there in the next the next week making the, the opposite demands, and they just, they have to more or less agree to be loyal to whoever is standing in front of them holding a gun. <laughs> so, um, I don't know, did you, did you ever see that film? I, I didn't, but, you know, I mean, I experienced it myself, and mm -hmm. you know, I was in Helmand with the Marines in 2009, there was a Marine lieutenant colonel, and he was asked by a farmer, you know, how long do you plan to be around? And uh, the Marine lieutenant colonel wasn't going to lie to him, he said I can only promise you I'll be here for nine months. And the farmer, you know, clearly what the farmer meant was, you know, exactly what you've pointed out, which is like, I, I you know, people switched, surrendered to the Taliban, not because they suddenly became enthusiasts for the Taliban's view of utopia, but because they want to keep their heads on their bodies. And, mm. you know, the war in Afghanistan began, began in 1978. It, it began even before the Soviets invaded. So it's been going on for 43 years, and Afghans want to survive. And, uh, you know, they've had multiple switches. In 92, the Kabul fell, the communists were defeated, and Kabul fell to the sort of the warlords. In 96, Kabul fell to the Taliban. In 2001, Kabul fell to the Americans. Uh, and now it's fallen back to the Taliban. So I think there's a, it's not that Afghans are sort of inherently conniving. <laughs> they, they just, uh, you know, they've had a long experience of needing to survive in a war that's gone on for almost half a century. Mm. And so what you describe in that documentary is, is, you know, is exactly right, which is, but going back to the question of corruption and the police and the army, you know, I've all, I went out on patrol with uh, Afghan police in the sort of 2003, 2004 time period. And you know, they were smoking the best quality grass you can get in the world. And that was about all they were doing. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the police were very poorly paid, no real morale. The army is slightly better. But, you know, when President Biden talks about the 300,000-man army, that, that figure is probably half that because so many people were deserted, so many ghost, ghost soldiers. So, you know, it, that was, it hasn't really been, that wasn't really much of a success. The Afghan special forces are quite robust and, and they were, they've been fighting well, 
and the Afghan Air Force has some competence, but but clearly the Afghan army, you know, if you haven't been fed or paid for many, many months, it's not like you're going to have a tremendous loyalty to the central government. Yeah, and th- there's also just this truly asymmetrical advantage with respect to morale and commitment when you picture the psychology on the Taliban side. I mean, you have one side that is literally fighting for paradise or their conception of paradise, and the other is fighting for money, praying some pragmatic sense of the game theory of the moment. And, you know, it's just all of that is, however you can stitch it together, is far more fragile unless they were, there are people, a sufficient number of people on the the government and army side who are, I mean, this. I mean, this speaks to some possibility that there's there's more sympathy with the Af- with the, with the Taliban worldview than we might want to emphasize in this context. I mean, it's just it's, it's it's. I could imagine if most Afghans are as horrified by the Taliban as I am, then the explanation that they haven't been paid doesn't cut it, right? I mean, this is a life and death struggle against a totalitarian theocracy. You'd expect the two sides would really fight it out. But I have to expect that while they may not be totally sympathetic with the conception of, the, of Sharia that uh, the Taliban is going to demand of them, it's not as um, obscenely divergent from what most people think should be normative uh, as, it, you know, as would, it would be would, in our context. I would sort of caveat that pretty heavily in the following sense. So, you know, the Taliban is an overwhelmingly Pashtun movement. The Pashtuns are, mm. uh, you know, 40% roughly of the population. They are most, almost entirely from the south and the east. And so the norms that they have are the norms of rural Pashtuns. Uh, these are not the norms of Tajiks, Hazaras, or Uzbeks, or people who live in the cities. You know, they're not like... Right. Yeah. It's it's obviously, you know, I'm not saying that people in Kabul are like, you know, sort of taking tons of drugs and going to discos and like, you know, there's there's obviously gender segregation, but it's a very of a different you know, it's of a much lower order. So I I, I I agree with you in the sense that just to ask you, like if you I I don't know a ton about him, but you know, someone like Ahmed Shah Massoud, right, who you mentioned earlier, I, I can't imagine he was a um as liberal a figure as as we would want him to be, you know, in opposition to Al Qaeda and the Taliban. That 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 is true. Look, I mean, Akram Shah Massoud, who I met in '93 and was kind of an astonishing human being, probably the most impressive person I've ever met. He um, was an Islamist, right? But he was also an Islamist with a kind of orientation to the West. I mean, he's. I think he went to a French lycée in Kabul. He, you know, he was perfectly happy dealing with Westerners, and so it's it is a matter of degree, as you point out. Yeah. But and the other thing also, just a sort of related point on the Taliban, I mean, the Taliban also pays people and they're sitting on a, you know, multi-billion dollar poppy opium enterprise. And mm-hmm. so I think for, for a lot of the foot soldiers of the Taliban, you know, they may not completely subscribe to Taliban ideology and they may not really care about it completely. They are getting paid pretty steadily. And just like ISIS was able to pay people, there's kind of a distinction between a terrorist group and an insurgent group. You know, obviously there are kind of military differences, but terrorist groups tend to be volunteers, mm-hmm. and and often from the middle upper middle class or middle class. An insurgent group usually has people on the payroll. You know, when you have thirty thousand men in the field, or sixty thousand, or seventy five thousand, 
as in the case now of the Taliban, you know, that's a pretty big payroll to meet. And, and, and so uh, the Taliban was paying people. Uh, there are limited jobs for young men in, in Afghanistan. And so I don't, I, you know, there is some ideological component to this, but there's also, for some people, this is just a job. And yeah. it's, um, it's a job where you're actually getting paid. Yeah, yeah. And it's, again, you're, you're back in the, what appears to be, what clearly is the stronger horse, right? It's just, it's purely pragmatic at that point as well. Yeah. So how do you view this? Now, let's think about the implications of this for jihadism globally. Do we think that um, a, a resurgent Taliban, you know, something like a, 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 their version of a caliphate uh, in Afghanistan will have a, a similar galvanizing effect that, that uh, the Islamic State had worldwide? And is this just the pendulum swing back into global jihadism, claiming more and more of our, of our bandwidth uh, geopolitically and journalistically? I think the short answer is yes. I mean, why would it be any different? I mean, here, here the Taliban, in their own minds, defeated first the Soviets, because a lot of them came out of the anti-Soviet jihad, and now the Americans. And that's a pretty big uh, deal. Mm. And, um, you know, they're going to declare not a caliphate, but an emirate. The distinctions between the two are less important than the similarities. Right. And the commander of the faithful is how the Taliban refers to their leader, which is a claim that not only do I lead the Taliban, but I'm in charge of all Muslims everywhere, which was the same claim that Abu Bakr al-Baghdadi made when he declared ISIS. So, you know, one of the big differences, I think, is that ISIS was like pathologically sectarian. The Taliban certainly have engaged in anti-Shia, anti-Hazara massacres. Uh, it may not be the defining core of their movement, which for, the ISIS, for ISIS, clearly that was the case. But I think you're going to see foreign fighters pouring in from South Asia and, and parts of Europe to join this you know, incredible, incredibly successful enterprise. And you'll see a few Americans who may try and travel there. You'll certainly see people radicalizing in front of their computers because you know, they, they believe that this great jihadist victory has happened and they self-identify. And we saw that with ISIS. Mm. The problem, of course, in, in the United States was people kind of self-radicalizing because of the ISIS geographical caliphate. And it was very exciting. And once that caliphate geographically disappeared, uh, the number of people who got excited about it was much, much smaller because no one wants to join the losing side. So right now, the Taliban are the winning side. Al-Qaeda is, you know, kind of on the front lines with them. And not only Al-Qaeda, but other jihadi groups. Mm. So, you know, I, I think we've seen this movie before. We kind of know how it begins, and we also know how it ends. It doesn't end usually very well for the groups concerned, because ultimately a coalition of nations and other groups kind of, it's kind of Napo like Napoleon in 1813, which is like, if you make, make a world of enemies, it's going to lead to your own defeat. And these groups tend to do that. Um, mm -hmm. They tend to kind of create a lot of antibodies whether it's in domestically or internationally. Well, so now we're, we're kind of backing into the um, contents of your book. Um, we know through your reporting that there's been a very cozy relationship between the Taliban and, and al-Qaeda all the while. Uh, there was really, you know, while there was some discomfort at various stages of Osama bin Laden's uh, reign where he was, you know, seeking publicity in ways that, that Mullah Omar and others found inconvenient, there was never really a significant breach between them, and they've been mutually supportive until the present. But I'm wondering, what do we know about 
the fact that there was not only not real collaboration, but actually overt hostility between the Taliban and uh, ISIS or the Islamic State. Yeah, I mean, they, they've certainly been fighting each other. And is that ideological or is it just not wanting to share the power? As far as I can tell, it's mostly Taliban groups that have slapped on the ISIS kind of uh, patch. And, you know, that makes them bigger and badder. And uh, I, I don't think it's it's like the narcissism of minor differences, which is Freud's um, brilliant mm-hmm. observation about most human activity. And, you, you, um, you do think it is, or you don't think it is? No, I think it's. I think I don't. I don't. I don't think there's some big ideological split. Right. Certainly, ISIS is more likely to attack Shia, whether in Afghanistan or anywhere else. But, but I think it's more just that certain Taliban groups wanted to be the biggest, baddest person on the block and slapped on the ISIS patch. Mm-hmm. And it was more about you know, local grievances, local personalities. I don't think there was... The Taliban, of course, had engaged in negotiations with the United States, which ISIS clearly hasn't done. Mm-hmm. But I see it as more you know, the narcissism of minor differences rather than some big ideological split. Right. Obviously, ISIS and al-Qaeda have split in a kind of perhaps a little more ideological manner because al-Qaeda has tended to want to, to avoid attacking Shia, except al-Qaeda in Iraq, which of course was the sort of the progenitor of ISIS. Right, right. Okay, so let's get into the history here and um, the fascinating case study of Osama bin Laden. There's, there's, we actually know a lot about him now, I mean, as you report, just given how many documents were liberated from his compound in Abbottabad, and there's just, you know, there's been so much testimony as to what he was like, and you, you have, you even met him. Perhaps you can Give us the, the big picture here. What, what do we know about him as a person? How would you summarize him psychologically and religiously and, and all the rest? Yeah, my book is an attempt to answer a puzzle. And the puzzle is, you know, why did this shy religious teenager, son of a, one of the richest men in the Middle East, become decades later the leader of a group dedicated to killing American civilians? And I do not engage in a lot of armchair psychologizing. I'm not a psychologist. Uh, he wasn't my patient. And I, I try and lay out, instead of the sort of armchair psychologizing approach, I try and lay out kind of how this happened. And I don't also try and engage too much in why this happened, because I think the how allows the reader to make his or her own determinations about what was important. So just to kind of give you the kind of stations of the cross that uh, he went through, you know, he was a religious teenager hyper-religious. I mean, just extraordinarily, you know, praying an extra set of prayers in the middle of the night, fasting twice a week when he was a teenager. And, you know, he, 1979, the Soviets invade Afghanistan, the Shah of Iran is overthrown by religious revolutionaries. Um, Mecca is attacked by uh, Islamist uh, militants. Very exciting time to be alive for bin Laden. Uh, He volunteers to go to fight, not to fight, but to support the Soviet, anti-Soviet occupation. He volunteers within two weeks to go and get money to the Afghan fighters fighting the Soviets. He, he doesn't go to Afghanistan until 84. He regrets it. He feels that he let God down by going so late. Then in 87, he sets up his, his own base. His base was called Al-Qaeda. From that base, uh, known as Al-Qaeda, he fought almost suicidally bravely against the Soviets. It was an early example of his lack of military kind of expertise or because he set up a base very near a Soviet base in order to attract enemy fire, which made, made no sense. And the Afghans never really sort of thought, saw bin Laden as a serious military guy. They saw him as a money guy. 
he wanted to set up his own military operation, which is crazy because there were only, at the most, 300 Arabs fighting the Soviets at any given time. There were 175,000 to 250,000 Afghans fighting the Soviets. Mm-hmm. One thing Afghans don't need help with is help from, you know, kind of people from Saudi Arabia who have no military expertise coming in to help them fight. It, that made no sense. But out of that grew Al-Qaeda. And then, of course, uh, you know, he, he'd always been sort of latently anti-American when American troops were posted in Saudi Arabia after Saddam Hussein's invasion of Kuwait. That turned him in a much more radical direction. And, and one of the themes of the book is like none, none, none of these decisions were inevitable. You know, there were off-ramps that were offered to, him, to, offered to him. Friends would say, hey, it's crazy. You're setting up this military base in, in, in Afghanistan. He ignored that advice. Friends, when he was in exile in Sudan, friends would say, hey, just do a deal with the Saudi fam- royal family and all will be forgiven. He seemed to contemplate that. But in the end, he rejected it. And then, of course, he was forced into exile into Afghanistan. And from that point forward, you know, he was really intent on kind of attacking the United States. And one of the sort of th- sub-themes of the book is Ayman al-Zawari, who's now the leader of al-Qaeda. There's some debate about, is he very sick? Is he alive? But in the post-9-11 era, there was a lot of discussion about Ayman al-Zawari being the, the, being the brains of al-Qaeda. Mm-hmm. And after spending a long time thinking about this and reading all the evidence, I've concluded that Zawahiri had almost no impact on bin Laden before 9-11. You know, Zawahiri was very focused on overthrowing the Egyptian regime, which bin Laden could care less about. And you know, bin Laden was the guy who came up with this big idea, attack the United States, subject them to enough military pressure, and they'll pull out of the Middle East, and then the Egyptian regime will fall, then the Saudis will fall. Of course, this was a completely crazy military strategy that totally backfired on him, because after we were attacked in Washington and New York, we became more involved in the Middle East than we have at any point in our history. And even with the pullout from Afghanistan, we still have troops in Iraq, we still have big bases in Qatar, and the United Arab Emirates in Syria, we have troops. So bin Laden's whole theory of the case was, was actually nonsensical. So the, the book attempts to explain how, how he got there. Yeah, yeah. And, and though you restrain yourself from um, the pleasures of, of armchair psychology, a lot of the psychology comes through, I mean, even in, in just what you said, but also in the book. I mean, for one, there is no reasonable basis for doubt that he was sincerely religious, right? He was, he was genuinely devout, and he believed exactly what he said he believed, and he was motivated quite logically by the, those beliefs. I mean, that's just a hundred percent agree. I mean, yeah. the, the other, you know, we live in an increasingly secularized society. And so therefore the, the role of religious belief is some, sometimes, um, I think underestimated, uh, but bin Laden, bin Laden was a religious zealot from the age of about 12 or 13. And he, one a guy I interviewed in the book for the book, a, a guy called Noman Benotman was the leader of the Islamic, one of the leaders of the Islamic Libyan Islamic fighting group. And Norman now lives in London. He sort of rejected all this stuff. But he, he said a very smart thing to me at one point, which is uh, that bin Laden believes that even Muslims who kind of get in the way of you know, his, his utopia are, are you know, kind of legitimate targets. And I quote a very interesting exchange between bin Laden and his bodyguard, because his bodyguard after the embassy attacks in Africa, in Tanzania and Kenya in 98, said, you know, why so many civilians were killed? 212 civilians were killed. And the, many of them, by the way, Muslim, because Kenya and Tanzania have substantial Muslim populations. And bin Laden's answer was sort of to laugh it off and say, look, we warned we were going to do these attacks once we'd made these warnings. You know, it was kind of their problem if they got in the way. He also added that the bombs went off 
at 10.30 on a Friday morning and that anybody who was a real Muslim would be in the mosque at that time. So if they got killed in the attack, it didn't really matter. So I think the the role of religious belief in bin Laden is just like there's no no other explanation for it. Uh, And uh, indeed, for so many other people in Al-Qaeda. When you look at how he chose to live, you know, guided by the light of, of his religious beliefs, he really became the perfect figurehead for this movement. I mean, he, it seemed that he did not start as a, an obvious candidate to be a, a leader of men, but given that he was, he was uh, fairly wealthy and could have done more or less anything he wanted, and what he chose to do was live this genuinely austere life in in caves and in you know even when he wasn't in a cave when he was when he went to Khartoum you know I mean he he refused to use uh, air conditioning in you know in these terribly hot environments he forced his his wives and kids to go on these um I mean basically a boot camp he would do with them where they would sleep in the desert and you know if they got cold cover themselves with dirt and I mean he would he would dehydrate his kids to get them used to the the austerity of that. I mean, it's just, this was not just a pretense. This is what, in, in the privacy of his life, he was he was deciding to do. Um, he was a kind of, um, I mean, he was a religious fanatic who uh, was preparing yeah. for a, a, a lifelong war against the West. And he was also almost like a prepper. I mean, he was, right. you know, to use a sort of American term here that he wouldn't have used himself. But you point out, you know, he did all this kind of neo-survivalist kind of stuff where he'd take his entire family out into the desert and force them to like go on long marches and, you know, kind of uh, sleep outside. And, you know, his family were not enamored of all this stuff and they didn't, you know, they weren't thrilled that he was forcing them to live like medieval peasants when they knew they had quite a lot of money in the bank, at least for a good chunk of his time. And and that actually forced to, to his, one of his wives left with three kids when he was living in Sudan saying, essentially, I didn't sign up for any of this and I'm going to divorce you. And Bin Laden sort of allowed her to do that. And his oldest son also left him sort of on the same basis. He said it was absurd that they couldn't use refrigerators when they were living in Khartoum, which is one mm-hmm. of the hottest places in the world. So yeah, it's, it's, re- religion is the key to Bin Laden. And, you know, I think that's also the key to quite a lot of the people who lead Al-Qaeda. There's no other explanation for their activities. Yeah. And so, and that's the, I mean, I'm, I always run up against this supposition when speaking to a secular audience about a group like Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State. There's the assumption that, that evil people will always do evil things and religion is being used as a pretext in this case, right? So that Al-Qaeda or the Islamic State essentially functions like a bug light for the world's psychopaths. And, you know, these people would be murdering and raping anyway, and then they just they, they just get together and do it under the banner of, of Islam. But there's just no way that's true. I mean, you, you literally have people who drop out of medical school and join in London and join groups like this, and they tell us ad nauseum why they do it. They have a, a whole story about the structure of the universe under which this is completely logical for them to do. And when you look, I mean, I would distinguish someone like Osama bin Laden from someone like uh, Abu Musab al-Zarqawi, right, who, ra- who ran uh, al-Qaeda in Iraq. With someone like Zarqawi, I'm perfectly prepared to believe that he was a psychopath who was just going to 
be mistreating and and killing people wherever he was, you know, because he just he clearly that's what he was about. Insofar as I think I know and much about him, when you get into the details of of uh, Bin Laden's thinking about violence and the use of violence, he he was far more disciplined and just taken in by the casuistry of it all. I mean, he just he wanted to split hair. He wanted to know exactly what was permitted by Islam, and uh, he had a rationale for it. And he was not. I mean, I, I think as at one point in the book you point out he was not at all a fan of killing lots of Muslims as collateral damage, if only for the, the optics of it, right? I mean, he, there, there is a rationale, as you point out, that, you know, if, if they were, in this case, in the case of the embassy bombings, if they were real Muslims, they wouldn't have been in the embassies, they would have been at the mosque, given the time in the bombings. And I've even heard people of bin Laden's ilk go one step further, saying, well, you know, any true Muslim is going to go to paradise, and they're going to thank us for you know the, the early entrance, right? So there's, there's no problem. You know, you just literally cannot kill the wrong people under these conditions. Indeed, but um, yeah, yeah. So I I just see that he's. I can imagine a, a an exhaustive psychobiography of Bin Laden concluding that he was a psychologically normal, even healthy person who was just living by the light of from our point of view, these genuinely crazy and divisive and harmful ideas. But, you know, there are endless examples of psychologically normal people being taken in by, by ideas of that sort. Yeah, we're a very ideological species. And whether it's poli- a political religion like, you know, Stalinism or Nazism mm-hmm. or Picurism, you know, people have a very strong need for certainty and a kind of... Um, yeah, I'm I, I'm a fan of Isaiah Berlin, just generally because of his life experience and his and and what he what he said, but his life experience was very informed by you know the the isms of the early 20th century, which every time everybody anybody says I have the answer, you can you can be often be assured there are going to be a lot of a lot of body bags following mm-hmm. the person who makes that claim. So Bin Laden is certainly in that of that ilk and. I think you're right. I don't think he's psychologic. I mean, again, I'm not a psychologist, but I don't, there's nothing about him that sort of suggests he had sort of real psychological problems. I, I think he was kind of an unusual person. And, you know, at the risk of some armchair psychologizing, he, his parents divorced when he was two. He comes from, a, from Yemen, which is kind of a marginal, even though a very rich family, you're not part of the Saudi kind of aristocracy, mm-hmm. even though they're, they're a very rich family. And, you know, Bin Laden was one of 55 siblings who only met his father for one substantive meeting in his entire life before his da- father died age 10. And Bin Laden, by his own account, says the death of his father was kind of what turned him to religion. And I take that at face value, that he started memorizing the Quran and became a lot more, he was already a apparently rather grave kid, and that turned him and we, you know, people talk about cognitive openings to these kinds of ideas. You know, the death of a parent is a pretty big one, even if it's a parent that you, it turns out that he spent almost no time with. But I, but I, I agree. I don't think there's something any, anything psychologically abnormal about Bin Laden, at least as far as I can tell. In fact, his friends, you know, say particularly in his early life, he was very shy and quiet and did a lot of listening. And as he got older, kind of believed in himself more. That people talk about, you know, he had a kind of charismatic aura uh, that was kind of exciting to them. But they don't say, you know, that he was exhibiting kind of, you know, what we would consider to be 
abnormal psychological behaviors. Mm. I do think he was delusional about a lot of things, but they were sort of delusions based on how he saw the world, not delusions like walking down the street and thinking somebody's following you, but right. he was very deluded about what the American response would be to 9-11. He thought that we, he really believed his own propaganda, that we were a paper tiger and wouldn't respond. Uh, he based that on kind of our pulling troops out of Somalia after the Black Hawk Down incident in 93, amongst other things. And uh, Well, there was a but, fair yeah. amount of, in his defense there. I mean, we were living through another moment where we appear to be a paper tiger. But at the time, there was abundant evidence that, you know, on his side that we, you know, we would cut and run from any significant engagement like that. And, and I guess you could even argue that our failure to capture him in Tora Bora, I mean, that was, just, that was really a, a kind of signal loss of nerve on our part. I mean, we were just, we, we appeared not to be ready to risk our own troops under those conditions. I mean, maybe you know more about the decision-making there. I believe it was Tommy Franks who had to make that call, but I think Jim, James Mattis wanted to bring his forces in there and, and got no response from the, um, the, the higher-ups at that point. But you, you, you describe it at some length in the book. Maybe tell us about that moment. I mean, everything could have been different had we actually just got bin Laden at that point, at the very outset of the war. What, what do we know about why we didn't do that? You know, it's hard for people to remember how risk-averse the Pentagon was at the time. You know, the last war the Pentagon had been involved in was the Kosovo War, which is an air war with no American casualties. Hmm. And previous to that, there was the Somalia Black Hawk Down incident in which 18 American servicemen were killed. So there was a great deal of risk aversion to the Pentagon. Uh, Donald Rumsfeld was very annoyed that there was a CIA who got in there first and was really doing a lot of the fighting on the ground or calling in airstrikes. So there was a great deal of risk aversion. There was, you mentioned the graveyard of empires at the beginning of the show. You know, that, that narrative kind of had a, you know, a big resonance and more than it should have because, you know, going after bin Laden with a group of 800 rangers for the limited purpose of hunting him down in a very small part of Afghanistan was not like the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan in which they killed at least a million Afghans and forced a third of the Afghan population out of their homes. And millions of refugees continue to live in Iran and Pakistan as a result of the anti of the, of the Soviet war. So the point is, is that the graveyard of empires was not a particularly useful analogy, particularly in the context of just CIA requesting a you know eight hundred rangers to come in and try and surround Tora Bora, which, as you say, was turned down by Tommy, Tommy Franks. Jim Mattis, who was then a brigadier general for the Marines, had fifteen hundred Marines in the Kandahar, southern Afghanistan area. He wanted to send people in. Uh, set up ob observation posts, kind of cut off, cut off escape. His, you know, that plan just never got a reply, as you pointed out. And we also had the 10th Mountain Division in Uzbekistan, which is just to the north of Afghanistan, which, you know, specializes in alpine warfare. Tora Bora is kind of a wintry, mountainous area. Uh, they could have been deployed, they weren't. So it, it just, there was a huge risk aversion. And then, you know, in the book, I point out that on December 12, 2001, the very day that bin Laden escaped the battlefield, and I, we can pinpoint it with precision to 11 p.m. that night, mm -hmm. because there was a, uh, there's a contemporary, Ayman al-Zawari in 2015 released his own account of what happened. He was with bin Laden when they fled the battlefield. And that, at that very moment, there's an eight and a half hour time difference between Tora Bora and Washington, D.C. Tommy Franks and Donald Rumsfeld were discussing the Iraq war plan, which is an 800-page document that Tommy Franks had had to rewrite in one week to Rumsfeld's satisfaction. Mm. So 
you know, it, it's sort of like he was one distracted. of the cliches in the yeah. world is that we took our eye off the ball to go to Iraq. Well, I mean, this this is so clear. The architect of 9-11 is literally escaping as Tommy Franks is briefing the war plan to Don, Donald Rumsfeld. So mm. it was risk aversion. It was kind of taking the wrong lessons from history. It was focusing on Iraq. Um, and it was a missed opportunity. Hmm. Yeah, well, the um, distraction of Iraq, I mean, that, in retrospect, that's even more amazing than it was at the time. But even at the time, it, it, did, it just did seem like a lateral move that had no real justification apart. I mean, it had, it had this, I guess, the, the most charitable, rational view of it. I mean, if, unless you were taken in by the idea that somehow Saddam was responsible for 9-11 because he had collaborated with al-Qaeda. I guess some people believe that at the time, but that, I mean, that never seemed uh, especially plausible. I guess the what did seem plausible to people is, okay, now the, the lid has come off of, uh, of the Middle East, and we, ha- we, we must recognize we have several enemies, and some are quite a bit scarier than al-Qaeda, even though al-Qaeda just did this horrific thing in, in, on, on our own soil. Uh, so now's the time to deal with Saddam Hussein, who, who almost certainly has weapons of mass destruction, right? And he's thumbing his nose at us, and he's shooting at UN flyover planes, and he's as bellicose as, as you could want in an enemy, so let's deal with him. I mean, that like the pivot to Iraq on the assumption that we were going to find weapons of mass destruction, I guess made sense to many people. I mean, I, I always was agnostic about it, but what, what, what was always clear at that moment is that it seemed like a very dangerous distraction from what we were attempting in, in Afghanistan. And uh, I mean, we, as you point out, we can, we can trace the consequences of that distraction to the, down to the very hour at which we were you know, failing to get enemy number one. Uh, it was just amazing history. Yeah, I mean, I mean, let's not forget that the Bush administration in, engaged in a barrage of propaganda about the purported links between Saddam and al-Qaeda, and that polling data showed that 70% of Americans believed, even two years after 9-11, that Saddam was somehow involved. Yeah. Even though was, you know, it was the largest criminal investigation in history, they they chased down five hundred thousand leads. I think they did like one hundred and fifty thousand interviews, and there's just no not an iota of evidence of Saddam and you know, any involvement. What, what's your view of that, Peter? I mean, what what was the the reason? I mean, if we could read the minds of Cheney and Wolfowitz and Rumsfeld and Bush, and anyone anyone else who was in a position to influence that decision. Because the the pivot to Iraq was so early, right? Long before there could have been, you know, much of a plausible case to be made, however delusional that there was a connection between Al Qaeda and, and Saddam. What was the thinking there? Why did we go into Iraq? Well, there was a certain kind of desire to get Iraq, you know, get Saddam that we didn't get him in after the first Gulf War. But there was also there's a you know there's often an inverse relationship between the the seriousness of people's arguments and uh, their effect on history, by which I mean, so there was a woman called Laurie Milroy who wrote a book claiming that Saddam had been behind the first Trade Center attack in 1993. And this was kind of an article of faith amongst Wolfowitz and others, Mm. even though there was no, absolutely no evidence for this. And um, so 
they really believed when 9-11 happened. I mean, you can go, it's relatively easy to look at the um, oral history that is kept in the Miller Center at the University of Virginia, which now has a lot of Bush officials who were interviewed. And, you know, within you know, microseconds of this event happening on 9-11, Wolfowitz is talking about Iraq and so is Rumsfeld. And, um, you know, they, they really believed that somehow Saddam was involved and that it was, it was an article of faith. And I think also they happened to really want to get rid of Saddam. And this was a particularly useful argument because, mm. you know. You think it was both or do you think it was a pretext for one, thinking that getting rid of Saddam was a totally legitimate and defensible project on its own and we could use this as a pretext for doing it? I mean, I, I, it's really hard for me to disentangle that one. Hmm. Um, well, speaking of myths, there's another myth you expose in your book, which is the myth of CIA funding of al-Qaeda. I would only be guessing at how widely that is believed, but certainly <laughs> in, in liberal circles, it is, it is a... Well, Michael Moore certainly believes it. I, yeah, you know, yes. I um, or, or he did after, shortly after 9-11. You know, negatives are hard to prove, but we're now four decades after the end of the so anti-Soviet war, and there's no like document, there's no person, there's no. I'm, I'm a sort of, uh, you know, I come out of a history background, and I, um, you know, I, I don't believe the lack of evidence. I don't believe the Rumsfeldian idea that, you know, lack of evidence somehow doesn't mean anything. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I think if there's a lack of evidence, there's a lack of evidence. And, you know, we now have any, you know, one of the things, that, Sam, about the way the war was conducted is CIA officers didn't go into Afghanistan. There were only about a half a dozen of them in Islamabad in Pakistan during the war. They were essentially quartermasters, uh, and they were giving money to the Pakistani military, which was then selecting who they wanted to fund. The biggest recipient of aid is Gulbuddin Hekmatcha, who remains alive, is an Islamist militant. And you know, not, and uh, not really, kind of a terrible guy. But they never funded the Af the Afghan Arabs like Bin Laden. They didn't even know who these people were. In fact, the first American official to write about Bin Laden, and I profile her at some length in the book, is Gina Bennett, who was a junior analyst at the State Department in 1993 and wrote a very effective classified memo saying, "Hey, this guy Osama Bin Laden seems to be gathering people from around the world, and they're you know carrying out terrorist attacks, and you know this is going to be a real threat." But that's in '93. Four years after the Soviets withdrew. So they had no idea who the Afghan Arabs were. And bin Laden had his own family money and he was raising a ton of money from private circles uh, in, in Saudi Arabia, uh, including from his own family members. And so the CIA and the Af Afghan Arabs didn't know who, had no reason to really deal with each other. You know, it's, it's a, kind of one of these widely held beliefs, but it isn't true. So um, on the point about bin Laden's money, I mean, how, how rich? Was he? Do we? Do you have a sense of of his yeah. personal wealth? You know, Steve Cole, uh, who uh, you know, I, my friend of mine and a co colleague, and and, and uh, we both labor in the same in this same mine. Um, you know, Steve did the the book about the Bin Laden family, the Bin Ladens, and he has the I think the most precise accounting of what how much money Bin Laden and his siblings received. And essentially, it boils down to when Bin Laden's brother died, um, his oldest brother, Bin Laden took a ten million dollar payout. This is in 1988, 1989 timeframe. Mm -hmm. And he retained a sort of $9 million interest in his family company. Now, one of, the, of course, his father was one of the richest men in the Middle East. But when you have 55 kids yeah, and tw gets, 20 wives, four of whom are current, you know, the money yeah. gets split up. <laughs> so a lot Bin Laden of, a lot kind of, of child walked away 
with with twenty million dollars, which, which back in you know the late eighties is you know uh, a not insignificant sum. Hmm. By nineteen ninety four, he's cut off from his family money. His family sort of disown him. You know, he by his own account, he invested twenty twenty nine million dollars in Sudan. Much of that money he never recouped. But yeah, so he had access to significant, relatively significant funds. But then he gets to Afghanistan. His you know he does I think get some money back from Sudan, a couple of million dollars it appears. But I think you know you know people were donating money, and a lot of the people who came were volunteers, you know who were just came to be part of the jihad. So I mean, when you ask about the money, what's the uh, kind of? Well, I, I guess I I had a um, until I read your book, I had a I think a somewhat unrealistic picture of how much money he had access to personally, and versus how much fundraising they had to do to keep their jihad alive. Yeah, and I think the reason you had that is the early kind of reporting around 9-11 was he had $300 million. And of course, it's, mm. case, it's kind of a case of mirror imaging, which is for, uh, I'm not, I don't really mean this as a sort of anything more than an observation, but like, you know, for Americans, money's very important in a sense. And so we're going to explain bin Laden only through the lens of money rather than through other lenses like religious belief or, you know, pick your other lens. Mm-hmm. So there was, there was some essentially exaggerated reporting around the amount of money he had. Right. He certainly was well off. He was a multimillionaire, but he was not, you know, sitting on hundreds of millions of dollars. Mm-hmm. Actually, there's some touching uh, recounting in your book of his relationship to his wives that make him, this kind of falls more on the side of the balance that he was a psychologically normal person. I mean, he had wives who he really respected and relied on for their advice. I mean, at least one was a proper religious scholar who he relied on for, you know, PR purposes and just, I mean, he genuinely sought their counsel in how he would, you know, message to the world at various points. I hadn't heard any of that. And it just, um, it's not, wasn't a surprise. It was just, it's very interesting. Yeah. I mean, and I think, you know, maybe listeners might be a little surprised that he had two wives with PhDs because you think of him as sort of probably a misogynist who, yeah. you know, didn't, you know, and, and obviously I'm sure he had very misogynistic views, but he did, he, he respected his two oldest wives uh, and he relied on them for do some of his thinking and writing of his speeches. He, in particular, one wife called Um Hamza, the mother of Hamza, she had a doctorate in child psychology before she married bin Laden at the inordinately eight, late age of 35 for, for a Saudi woman. Mm-hmm. Uh, she'd had her own independent career, and she was also uh, you know, very deeply re- versed in the Quran. She claimed descent from the Prophet Muhammad's family, which was very important for bin Laden, who sort of modeled himself in his own mind on the Prophet. And she, um, she'd been spending uh, 10 years under house arrest in Iran after 9-11. She suddenly is released by the Iranians, shows up in Abbottabad, Pakistan on February 15th, 2011. And Bin Laden, you know, writes her, as she's coming towards him in the several-month process of traveling from Iran to, to his hideout in Pakistan, he's sending her these almost lovelorn letters saying how excited he is that he's going to see her. She's 62, he's 54. He, um, he even says, look, if I'm even thinking about coming, traveling 300 miles to Waziristan on the Afghan-Pakistan border to come and pick you up and bring you back if, if needed, which would have been a fantastic risk for one of the world's most wanted uh, men and recognizable people. But he didn't do that in the end. But she showed up and he, he you know, held nightly meetings with her and his other oldest wife, Saham, who also had a PhD in Quranic grammar, as you mm-hmm. say, Sam. 
and his two oldest daughters, and they were kind of puzzling over what to say about the Arab Spring, which uh, posed a real conundrum for them. Yeah, yeah. And if we're going to ascribe any uh, characterological defect to him, it was certainly there was something narcissistic and grandiose about him, you know, if only in the end. I mean, he, he was somebody who, once he grew into the role of being the leader of al-Qaeda, he was very uncomfortable being sidelined and having this, the, the Arab Spring not be about him and his influence. And um, I think probably until his last day on Earth, he was trying to figure out how to to wield more influence and to have the story of global jihad be more and more about him. Agreed. I mean, I think he was, you know, narcissistically obsessed by his own image, had a kind of grandiose view of his role in history. But I mean, to defend that view for a minute, I mean, 9-11 set the course of American foreign policy for yeah. the first two decades of the 21st century. And the United States got engaged in wars in Afghanistan, Iraq, Somalia, Yemen, you know, Libya, a bunch of countries around the Muslim world, various kinds of military operations. Uh, so, you know, he did he did change history. It, he, he didn't. He, what he, did, he changed history, but not in the way he thought it was going to change. Hmm. And then, as you say, in the sort of final days, there's this kind of there's a wonderful film downfall about Hitler in the bunker, and there is a kind of Hitler in the bunker like feel to Bin Laden in these final days, where he's you know angry that history is passing him by and has grandiose ideas that he can intervene and become the leader of the Arab Spring, and his family are completely indulging these fantasies because they believe them too. They really see him as a, if he delivers the right speech in the Arab Spring, that somehow it would be redirected in a way that was favorable to Al-Qaeda, which was a, a total delusion. Hmm. Well, sp- speaking of film, many people will have their clearest impression of the, the last days of Osama bin Laden from the, the film Zero Dark Thirty. Yeah. How accurate is that? Apart me, I guess there's the controversial point that the film depicts the crucial intelligence coming from torture, you know, so that basically it, it depicts the, the efficacy of torture, which is, um, needless to say, a very controversial point. And, and it seems that, you know, for the most part, we got most of the intelligence needed to capture bin Laden through um, more benign methods of interrogation. But I mean, say anything you want about that. How um, on the mark or or fictionalized is the is the film? Look, it's a great film, but it's a drama, and it's mm. not history. And the filmmakers try to have it both ways. They they say at the beginning of the film, based on actual events, and when they presented it as that, and they talked about it as being sort of you know based on sort of reporting, and and then when it was critiqued on the facts, and I wrote several thousand words critiquing it on the facts uh, for CNN.com, I and others. They said, well, it's really just a film. So they were kind of trying to have it both ways. And the, you know, the first, I saw an early, an early cut of the film, too late to really make any substantive changes. And the scenes of torture were very over the top. I think they kind of dialed them back a bit. But the idea that the Amer- American public saw that film, they would have made a simple equation, torture found bin Laden. And the 500, anybody who's interested can read the 500-page Senate Intelligence Committee report, which is a goldmine of information about not only just the whole secret prisons and interrogation program the CIA had, but also it has very useful information about how bin Laden was found uh, because they were able to declassify quite a lot of important material. And if you were, you know, it it turns out that was really an Agatha Christie story uh, involving a whole bunch of uh, different elements of the intelligence community. Uh, So liaisons with foreign services who gave us crucial information about the name of uh, bin Laden's bodyguard 
detainees who were not coercively interrogated who said the bodyguard played an important role in bin Laden's life. You know, there, there was a, and I recount a fair, a fair amount of this in the, in the book, which is, you know, the fact, in fact, the CIA interrogation program, the five people who were coercively interrogated and asked about bin Laden provided either false or misleading information about bin Laden's whereabouts and the people who were likely to be hiding him. Uh, there is a case now, because it's, it's complicated, there was a case in Guantanamo of uh, the 20th hijacker who was actually turned back at Orlando Airport mm-hmm. uh, and then picked up in, around Tora Bora and put in Guantanamo. He was coercively interrogated. And I use the word coercive interrogation because the word torture is, I think, um, is a word that is, uh, people will debate whether, whether this was torture or not, but they can't debate whether it was coercive interrogations mm-hmm. or not. And so these inter- coercive interrogations in Guantanamo, uh, they get this, this 20th hijacker you know, was kept awake for, I think, like 46 days or something, uh, almost continuously. And he was given enemas to kind of, of, of food and medicine to kind of keep him up. And he, he did give up some actually important information about the bodyguard that was protecting bin Laden. But, you know, the fact is, is that the information that kind of came together came from a lot of different sources, foreign governments, detainees who said something that was helpful signals intelligence, uh, and then spies on the ground. I mean, mm. it was really kind of every element of the kind of intelligence community kind of tactics were used to find Bin Laden. And, and you know, it's interesting. The New York Post ran a story about the book, which, you know, I, the New York Post, of course, is a great guilty pleasure. And they picked up on something that I hadn't really thought, but I thought was a great headline, which is, you know, one of the key elements that actually got the CIA to really believe that Bin Laden was in this about about compound was people counting laundry and mm. there was a safe house the CIA had and they just started counting laundry uh, because there were, they knew there were two families living there, the bodyguards families. But when they counted the laundry, it became clear there must be a third family, pretty substantial family that was also living there. And this added to their kind of circumstantial case that bin Laden was living there because the people who really tracked bin Laden knew that he may well be with his wives and family because he's, that's kind of how he'd lived. Most fugitives mm. don't take three wives and 12 kids and grandkids with them when they're on the run, but bin Laden did. And for those who knew him best at the CIA, this was an indicator that it was much more likely to be bin Laden than someone else. The fact that there was this extended family that was never mm. leaving the compound, and yet their laundry was on the laundry line. That reminds me of another myth that you um, deflate in the book, which is the idea that Pakistan knew all the while that he was in Abbottabad and, and somehow facilitated that. Uh, I mean, that really did seem like a plausible assumption, given how perfidious Pakistan has been with respect to our, our you know, their on again, off again uh, relationship with us in in resisting global jihad. Yeah, they, they seem to never lose an opportunity to stab us in the back. But it seems that everything suggests that they were just as surprised as we were to find him where we did. Yeah, there are a few different elements of that. One, you know, on the night of the bin Laden raid, the United States was listening to all the communications of the senior Pakistani military folks, and they were deeply, they were astonished and surprised and had no idea what was going on. Another element is we've now got 470,000 files that were recovered in the Abbottabad compound. There's no evidence that bin Laden was being protected by Pakistani officials, that Pakistani officials knew where he was in those documents. And, it, and finally, Sam, Bin Laden was hiding from people on the compound, which is kind of extraordinary. Yeah. One of the bodyguard's wives didn't know that Osama Bin Laden was hiding because he was being so careful. 
and um, so he had no reason to inform the Pakistanis of his presence. The uh, you know Al Qaeda, Hala Sheikh Mohammed, uh, the operational commander of 9/11, was arrested in a joint Pakistani CIA operation in 2003. Other leaders of Al Qaeda were le- were arrested by the Pakistanis. So Al Qaeda had a pretty high, high very skeptical view of the Pakistani state. Mm-hmm. And really, had Bin Laden had no reason to inform anybody. And he was informing nobody. He wasn't telling people in Al Qaeda where he was living. The only people who knew were his bodyguards and perhaps you know one or two other people. Uh, so anyway, the, and of course the biggest conspiracy theory that relates to this is Cy Hirsch, the investigative journalist, wrote a ten thousand word piece yeah. claiming that this you know, the Bin Laden raid was sort of like the moon landing, the fake moon landing, and the Pakistanis knew he was there and they cooperated with the United States and. I was the only outside observer to go on the compound in Abbottabad, and I can tell you a very, you know, you could just tell that there was a very intense firefight in a number of different places. And in Cy Hirsch's account, only Bin Laden is killed that, it, no one is killed that night, and Bin Laden is sort of, uh, except Bin Laden, and he, it's a joint operation between the Americans and the Pakistanis. None of this makes any sense. It's completely incoherent. Well, what, yeah, what, what happened to Seymour Hirsch? Well, that is a super good question. You know, occasionally, I've seen him occasionally in in the supermarket in Washington, and I kind of duck because (laughs) I I just don't want to. But it's it's unfortunate because obviously he uncovered the My Lai Massacre. He was instrumental in the the reporting on Abu Ghraib. But this thing is just, it just makes no sense. And I I have a, a, it relies on a single source source of an intelligence former American intelligence officer who I have a pretty strong suspicion I know, uh, retired, you know, before 9-11, long before. And it's sort mm-hmm. of like, it's just like the sort of thing you just talk about with your buddy and you're sort of bullshitting around and suddenly it's, it just, it's, it's, there's nothing in that piece. There's really almost, I can't, in a 10,000 word piece, I can't think of one assertion that's factually true except that Bin Laden was killed. It, it was not a New Yorker piece though, right? It was a, a London Review that's of Books. Correct. That's correct. The New Yorker wouldn't take it, and the London right. Review of Books would. Um, and in, I, I don't, I'm not familiar with his reporting on Syria, but I think it's equally flawed and has also appeared in the London Review of Books and not in right. the New Yorker. Right. Interesting. Well, Peter, I know I, I've taken a ton of your time, and you have a, a day job that forces you to get on television and put on face paint and talk about these <laughs> things to a, a wider audience. So um, thank you for the book, which is fascinating, and I, I recommend people pick up in, in any of its forms. And um, is there anything else you want to say? I, we covered a lot here. Do you have any th- final uh, words about what you think is going to happen, what should happen? What, how, what's your view of the, the future here? Uh, Yogi Berra's famous line, it's hard to make predictions, especially about the future. Well, it's a great pleasure to have you reporting on uh, what does in fact happen. So uh, thank you for all that you do. <laughs> thank you, Sam. Thank you for having me on. <laughs>